A teenager walked home on a dark March night in 1968 and vanished. Two years later, a similar crime was committed in the same area, and while modern forensics would give clues, both cases remain unsolved. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to day five of the 12 Days of Crime Lines, where I release 12 daily episodes. These are two cases from the same area that don't have a ton of information out there about them, but both have the hallmarks of being solvable cold cases, so they definitely need the boost. Someone out there knows what happened. The first case occurred on March 26, 1968, when 18-year-old Connie Paris disappeared after getting off the public bus. Connie lived in Englewood, Colorado. She was a senior in high school and had gone to downtown Denver to do some research at the library for a literature term paper she had coming up. The library closed at 9, and Connie left at that point to head home. We know she made it to the bus outside of the library because witnesses saw her on it. Connie regularly took the bus to get around, and she and her parents had a routine. If it was during the day or decent weather, she would just walk the five blocks home from the bus stop. But if it was after dark or cold or rainy, she would call her parents from the bank across the street and they would come get her. Being that Connie planned to be at the library until close, her mother specifically sent her with the change she would need to use the payphone so she could call for a ride. Witnesses said they saw Connie get off the bus at her planned stop, but she never called her parents and she never made it home. The next day, some of Connie's belongings, including her school books, were found dumped in a creek behind a military surplus store, not far from the bus stop. The reporting on whether any of these belongings included her clothes varies. The search for Connie continued for four more days until her body was found in a ravine on the edge of Fort Logan National Cemetery, which was about 10 minutes from where she went missing. She had been burned with a car cigarette lighter, beaten, and strangled. There was an early and promising lead in Connie's case when a security guard came forward, having seen a 1957 turquoise Ford sedan behind the bank. This is the same bank where Connie usually called her parents from. The guard, seeing a strange car near a bank, had written down the description and the license plate. However, Instead of seeing the car as a lead, the police suspected it was a diversion and the security guard became the suspect. That may be why the police apparently never looked up the car's plate numbers and they didn't go public with the description early on in the investigation. Though many leads were followed up on, Connie's case went cold. Then two years later, a shockingly similar case occurred just south of Englewood in Littleton, Colorado. Ninth grader Marilee Burt had grown up in Littleton. Her family was pretty well known there, 
for Burt Chevrolet, a dealership owned by her grandfather, which her father was the vice president and general manager of. On February 26, 1970, 15-year-old Marilee had a pretty typical day at school. She did meet with her guidance counselor to discuss her schedule for the next year. In her school district, ninth grade was still middle school, so they were planning out what classes she was going to take the next year at the high school. Marilee was a bright student, and she had a future just wide open. She was a cheerleader at her school, Goddard Middle School, and was very excited at the chance to try out for the high school squad. After school, Marilee went to a basketball game at her school where she was cheering. After this, she went to a friend's house. From there, she called her mom, Sherry, for a ride. But Sherry thought Marilee was saying she needed to be picked up at the school so she headed there. Meanwhile, Marilee waited for her mom, called her brother for a ride, but he was busy, and then decided to not wait any longer for a ride that just didn't seem to be coming. It was a two-mile walk home, and she decided to head out on foot. She left between 6.30 and 6.45. But Marilee never made it home. When her mother realized that there had been some sort of mix-up, the family started looking for her, assuming she was either at a friend's house or in the process of walking home. They called around and drove around looking for her, but when they couldn't find her, they called the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department to report her missing and get help for the search. At this point, it had been three and a half hours since Marilee had left her friend's house. A canvas of the area began that night and continued to the next day, February 27th. The police sent eight officers out in the area to talk to witnesses, and additional officers did physical searches of the area looking for Marilee or any of her belongings. Around noon, the day after Marilee was last seen, A road crew in the neighboring county were working on a bridge in Deer Creek Canyon when they found the body of a teen girl. This was about a 20-minute drive from Marilee's friend's house, and the body was identified as Marilee Burt. She was found without any clothes on and half-submerged in the water. Marilee had been hit with something heavy in the head but it was not enough to fracture her skull. It is possible she was knocked out or at least disoriented from the blow. Marilee had been sexually assaulted and then killed by strangulation. The person who killed her left a 10-foot length of rope around her neck. Missing from the scene were Marilee's cheerleading uniform that she was wearing and her school items like her notebook and her textbooks. On her body, they found little wood splinters and metal shavings. The slivers of wood were on her fingers, and the metal was tangled up in her hair. The thinking here is that she may have been taken to and killed in some sort of workshop, because that's where these types of items would be strewn on the floor. The rope was sent to the FBI for analysis, and a black hair was found on the rope that did not belong to Marilee. 
Other forensic evidence was also found. Scrapings of Marilee's fingernails showed that she had fought back as tissue was discovered. In 1970, this was of a limited use because we didn't have the technology to process the DNA, but that would come with time. The investigators in 1970 had to rely more heavily on witness statements. Marilee was walking home as people were heading home from work, so she was seen by multiple people. The police could basically track her from the spots she was seen, Berry Drive, Bowles Avenue, and Middlefield Road, to confirm that Marilee was heading in the direction of her home. She wasn't going off with a friend somewhere. They could trace her right to around the halfway point in her walk on Middlefield Road, which led to her subdivision. One of the people who saw her, but didn't realize it at first, was her brother Ramon, who was occasionally called Raymond in the reporting. Ramon was 16 years old and driving down Middlefield Road when he saw a teen girl in pigtails walking. He didn't get a good look at her face, and Marilee was wearing pigtails that day from the basketball game, and she rarely wore her hair that way. Since Ramon wouldn't have any reason to expect her to be walking in that area, it did not click that this was his sister. However, as he drove past her, an oncoming truck flashed his high beams. This is usually done to get the other driver's attention, so he looked in the rearview mirror to see what was going on. He saw the truck pull over alongside the girl who was walking. The girl then turned her head and started talking to the driver. A few minutes later, it hit Ramon that the girl may have been merrily walking home, so he turned around to go pick her up. As he drove up Middlefield Road, however, he didn't see her anywhere. Ramon was able to give a description of the man driving the truck. He was white with dark hair and a receding hairline. He looked to be about 30 to 40 years old, and he had long sideburns. Ramon was not the only witness who saw the truck, and they put it around the same time frame, between 645 and 650. One person said they saw the truck pull up to a young woman who was walking. They then saw the truck speed away, nearly running a stop sign. They didn't see or hear anything that looked or sounded like a kidnapping. When Marilee's parents heard these details, they suspected the man in the truck may have been someone Marilee knew, since she turned to talk to him and may have even climbed into his truck willingly. She wasn't the type to talk to a stranger who pulled up alongside her and certainly not take a ride with him. But it doesn't seem like they knew anyone who drove a truck like what was described, a 1968 to 1970 two-toned truck with a light top and a darker bottom. The investigation into the killer focused on the man and the vehicle Ramon and the witnesses had seen. They tracked down around 60 tips directly related to the truck and its description, as well as, of course, investigating the known sex offenders in the area. Like Connie's case, Marilee's case went cold. Then in the late 1990s, the DNA profiles from each crime scene were developed after 30 years. 
It's at this point that the police learned the DNA from each crime scene was different. So these murders, though very similar on the surface, were not linked by the same killer. And in Connie's case, the DNA also didn't match a very specific person they had been looking into, the security guard, who had been the main person of interest in the case for decades. And if he was not the killer, then the sighting he had of that car seemed a lot more important. It wasn't a diversion. He was telling the truth. The police still had all of the information on that car, but it was of limited value 30 years later. In 1968, car registration logs were not in databases. They were handwritten or typed ledgers. When the files became digitized years later, they only bothered entering current registrations. I mean, they really had no reason to go through the trouble of cataloging old and expired car registrations because they had no apparent use. They obviously had no way of knowing that the police had a license plate number of a suspect in a murder from 1968, but they weren't going to try to look it up for three decades. The car registration for that car had long since been tossed out. The investigator looking at the cold case has released the car's description in recent years, which is how we even know about it. It was a 1957 turquoise Ford sedan, but they have not released the plate number. Maybe someone in the area, however, remembers a relative or a friend who drove that vehicle. While the DNA profiles in both Connie and Marilee's cases have not yet pointed to their killers, they have been useful in ruling people out and narrowing the investigation. With Marilee's case specifically, nearly two dozen people have been cleared, mostly people who knew Marilee, and that also includes members of her family. They were also able to clear a gymnastics instructor who had taught Marilee. He had been convicted of sex offenses that occurred before Marilee went missing, and in 1981, he made admissions to picking up girls and assaulting them. He also made a comment directly about Marilee. However, his DNA was not a match. The cold case investigator on Marilee Burt's case has said that they have had about 10 really solid suspects over the years who were all ruled out by DNA. Some of them were deceased, so getting their DNA meant testing surviving relatives, finding old samples from autopsies, and, at least once, exhuming a body. Marilee's case has been reinvestigated multiple times over the years. In 2002, the investigators knew a lot of their witnesses were aging and even dying, so there was another push and over 100 people were interviewed or re-interviewed. A feature article was published in the Rocky Mountain News, and that generated dozens of tips. Some of them knew, and some of them reinforcing or shedding light on previous information. Both of these cases we've gone over today will have tips coming in pretty much every year, and in 2020, a tip came in for Marilee's case 
that the police found very promising. The next year, they raised the reward up to $30,000, which makes me wonder if they're close, but just need that one more tip. They do run the DNA through the database regularly in the hopes that a match will pop up. Colorado has been pretty aggressive with the use of genetic genealogy in solving cold cases. They generally do not announce cases that have been sent out for these purposes ahead of time because they don't want to tip anyone off. So we don't know if Lee or Connie's cases are on the list to be pursued now or later, but hopefully they will be. Anyone with information on the 1968 murder of Connie Paris or the 1970 murder of Marilee Britt is asked to call Crime Stoppers at 720-913-7867 or visit MetroDenverCrimestoppers.com. Tipsters can remain anonymous, and these points of contact will, as always, be in the show notes. Mm-hmm. 